You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. Welcome to Hope. My name is David Goff, and uh, so good to see all of you out there, and uh, just thank you for being here today. Today, our scripture reading, our passage is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. If you would please stand while we read this. And he, and he said to them, which of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and get you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Good morning. Uh, It's great to see you today. We want to continue our conversation today talking about prayer. We started last week as we started in the book of Luke chapter 11. And we covered the first four verses, which is a model for prayer for you and I. So I encourage you to go back online at hopeandanderson.com or our YouTube channel and check out that teaching and listen to it for a moment. It really gives you some great substance, I think, for today as well from Scripture. But this morning, shameless persistence and passion. So could you turn to someone around you and say to them, we're going to get shameless today. Say that to them for a moment. Would you mind? It's weird, isn't it? Doesn't it kind of feel strange saying that to them, right? Some of you have been wanting to say that to that person next to you for a long time, haven't you? Yes, that was your moment, that was, whatever that means. I think what we do, we talked about last week how we struggle in the area of prayer, and um, we struggle with motivation to pray. Now, I think what Jesus teaches us today in this story that David read so well, that he talks to us about that of our approach in prayer, is how do we, how do we come to God in prayer? When we are desperate, then, then how do we how do we present those desperate needs to God? And, and kind of, you know, almost a sense of, well, how far do we push? And how heavy do we push, right? And what do we say to God? And I don't know if you've ever come to God and you find yourself uh, really tempted to almost beg in some ways, right? And then when you read this text or this story that Jesus gives us, this illustration, it's far from begging, correct? I mean, it's not there at all. So how do we approach God is what the text is about this morning. And so I want to talk to you from this story. And let me just kind of take it apart for you. And then we're going to go to the book of Genesis chapter 32 for a great Old Testament story about prayer as well. It kind of illustrates the illustration. But here is what Jesus says to us when he tells the story in verse 5. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend... Um, I, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within 
do not bother me, he says. Now, I realize that the text doesn't actually have the voice inflection there, but I have to put it there because I think that's what you would say if somebody awakens you in the middle of the night. Do not bother me. It's sort of the unexpected response that you would get if you were the person knocking on the door. And here's, you know, that's probably the place that you go home and give up. But it goes on to say, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed and I cannot get up. He doesn't say, I will not get up. He says, I cannot get up. There's a reason for that in the text. I cannot get up and give you anything. So what does Jesus want us to see? I think those are important. That's an important question. So I think you want to see three things. One is the timing of the request. Now, this is a part in culture, and to be culturally contextual this morning, there's no electricity, as you kind of can figure out, right? So when you go to bed, you go to bed when the sun goes down. For all the nocturnal people in the room who like to stay up and watch net, Netflix, then this is not your culture for you, right? And, and so when the sun goes down, you go to bed. So if the sun goes down, say, 8 o'clock in the afternoon, this is midnight, so that they've been in bed for four hours already. They're kind of in a round sleep, and they're sound asleep. And so I love how Jesus tells the story because he gives great detail for you and I to not just read it, but to feel it. Because what we know is that when you read scripture, it's not that you just read it, but you feel scripture. It's, it brings life to us. And so you feel what's going on with the timing of the request. And then there's the nature of the request. Because in that time, culturally, that the room, uh, the house would have perhaps been one room and everyone slept together in one area along with some of their choice animals as well. And so they were all in one room together. And so for the man of the house, the father, to get up and to go to the door would mean awakening all the people in the family to get up and to move around in the room And so you see this massive inconvenience. Jesus tells the story in context of that culture so you will have some understanding. And then I think third, there is the magnitude of this request. The neighbor that is wanting bread for the company that's shown up, he's not asking for one loaf, which one loaf would equal one day's meal for a family. He's asking for three days of meals, you know? So it's one thing to knock on somebody's door in the middle of the night in this culture. They're fast asleep. They've been asleep for four hours. They're sleeping as a family in one room. So everybody has to get up. And and it's one thing to ask for just a loaf of bread. But he's asking for three, three days supply of bread. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Couldn't his guest just wait until the next morning and he can jump on his camel. He can ride over to Chick-fil-A and order something through the drive-thru and bring back some chicken minis and they'll all be good, right? Yes, why are are they absolutely starving? And maybe one loaf would be understandable if they were so that he can go and get food the next day. But he's asking for three days worth of food. So now you're meant to see the exorbency of this request. I love it. Jesus is a master storyteller. There's so much in here for you and I to understand and to grasp. And when Jesus tells it this way, you feel what he's saying to you and I about approach to him. And then he says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence. But by the word impudence, you write the word persistence. Persistence. That's what it means. And he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I think there's two things here in this verse that Jesus wants us to understand. One, 
that the neighbor does grant the request. He gives the neighbor that's knocking on the door what he's asking for. So he does grant the request, but I think really the big thing to understand is why he grants the request. That's the second thing. Why does he grant the request? Well, Jesus makes it very plain that they're friends, so they have a friendship, you know? And perhaps at some point, this neighbor who's asleep has said to his neighbor who is knocking at the door, hey, if you ever need anything, just let me know, right? If you ever need anything, just give me a call. I wonder how many times that some of us in this room have said that to someone and we pray underneath our breath, I hope they never take me up on it, right? And if they do take me up on it, please don't show up at my house in the middle of the night, correct? Yes, we say those things maybe out of politeness at times, you know? So they are friends, they have a relationship, but the one that's asleep doesn't respond because of the timing, because of the nature, because of the the extravagance of the request. He doesn't respond out of friendship, which they have, but he does respond out of the persistence of the one that's knocking at the door. The impudence. In fact, the word means that is used here, shameless persistence is a passionate plea. Shameless persistence. You see what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how we approach him in prayer. And I know this is a struggle for some of you in the room. It's a struggle because you feel like, well, I'm approaching the sovereign God of the universe and I I approach him in this shameless persistence. Is that what he's saying? Yes, but then there there are some parameters here and some guidance that Jesus gives us throughout scripture about how we approach him. Verse nine, and I will tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it shall be opened to you. And so maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, this story is a, it, it is a comparison of that of God being the grouchy neighbor, because we think of God like that sometimes, right? Is the grouchy neighbor who doesn't want to give. And so that's the way God does it. God kind of gives in because we, kind of, we just kind of hound him to death with our request. Or is this a comparison to God as well? Or a contrast. And I think what this is, is a contrast more than anything else. It is. But there's so many multiple layers to this story that Jesus gives us today. So let me give you an Old Testament story that I think just illustrates the illustration for you and I. And it's a story found in the book of Genesis chapter 32. It's a story of Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob are the twin sons of their father, Isaac. But Esau and Jacob are vastly different from one another. They are. So I begin to think, well, how do I explain to you the difference between Esau and Jacob? Because it fits into the story so well that Esau is the rough outdoors type. In fact, The book of Genesis calls him hairy. I think it's kind of weird, right? That it refers to his body hair. So he is hairy. He likes to hunt. He watches hunting videos on YouTube all the time. And he drives a very large four-wheel drive truck. That's him, right? So that's Esau. You say, Mark, you're stereotyping. No, I'm just kind of giving you uh, an understanding of the difference of the two. And then there's Jacob. 
<clears throat> excuse me, and Jacob is more the indoor type guy, which is fine. He loves to cook. He loves to watch HGTV and he drives a Subaru. And so there's the two of them, right? Yeah. You say, Mark, Subarus are really great off-road too. I understand that as well, but understand as I'm framing them for you how different they are. And so after one day watching the Food Network, Jacob, he, he boils up this stew, man. And it's the most amazing stew that's ever been known to man, right? Esau comes in after hunting because hunting is hard work. And he smells this stew and he has to have it. So all of a sudden, Jacob has this deceitful thought. And he says to Esau, I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright for a bowl of this stuff. And so that's exactly what happens. And Esau gives him his birthright. Wouldn't you love to have the recipe to that stew? Imagine the things that you could get by with in this life, right? Yeah, if you wanted something, just, yeah, you boil up a bowl of this stuff and you take it to the car dealership. And they give you a brand new car for a bowl of soup, right? Yes, that's kind of what we're being told. And so years have passed. And one day while Esau is out sitting in the deer stand hunting, Isaac, the father, wants his favorite meal of venison roast. And so Jacob and his mom hatch a plan. They get some deer out of the freezer. They, they fix his favorite meal. But Isaac, the father, is expecting Esau, the hunter, to come in and give him his favorite meal. So they have to disguise Jacob, right? And so they disguise Jacob as if he is one of the contestants from the Naked and Afraid show is what they do, right? Yeah. Have you ever seen it? You don't want to admit that in church, do you? Come on, let's be honest. How many of you have ever watched the show Naked and Afraid? Raise your hand. Oh, look at this. Some of you have, but you're not even raising your hand very high, right? Yes. Yes, that's interesting. <laughs> We're in trouble, babe. We are. Because I want to tell you, Reba and I like the show. We really do. We live vicariously through these people. We, we do. Because we would never do that, right? But they survive in these environments and they don't have any clothes on, we know. But yet, what we realize that they don't bathe and they probably smell really bad after 21 days out there. And they don't shave and they don't cut their hair. So they look really bad. So this is why they actually have to disguise Jacob to be like as he goes into Esau. And so what does Esau do? Esau gives, um, I'm sorry, to Isaac. And what does Isaac do? Isaac gives Jacob his brother's Blessing, And you can't retract that. You can't take that back. Yes. And so Esau is angry about all of this. And so he tells Jacob, I'm going to kill you when my father dies. And so what does Jacob do? He packs up his luggage. He puts it in the back of the Subaru and he heads out of town. And he leaves and he's gone for 30 years. He's gone for 30 years. And then God comes to Jacob and said, hey, Jacob, it's time for you to go home. And Jacob is like saying, I'm paraphrasing, but God, you know, my brother Esau still lives there. And God, I mean, whose big, brilliant idea is this to send me back to my sure death? And so let me start with this topic before I talk to you about prayer. Because if you don't start here, then you're going to have the wrong mindset when it comes to prayer in your life. God sovereignly directs our lives. Understand that. That God sovereignly directs our lives. Listen, even when it's even when it's Jacob returning home and Esau still lives there, God sovereignly directs our lives. And if we don't start there, we're going to have this mindset that somehow we do, or we're going to have this mindset that somehow 
that God steps into our lives in those moments when things are really bad and he fixes things when we pray. And then once all those things are fixed in our life, God kind of removes himself and we're good until the next time that things really go haywire and we pray and then God steps back into our lives. It is what we find in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for our good is what he's saying. That God will cause you at some times to walk back excuse me, over bridges within your life. He will. He'll he'll call you to face some things that you need to redeem within your life, to face the fear of the unknown, like the Esau of your life. And there's no assurance to Jacob what Esau is going to do to him when he goes home. So how do you face those huge looming issues of your life? How do you face them? Because Jacob is afraid, and rightfully so. His brother has been stewing, not no pun intended, right? But he's been stewing for 30 long years with all of this. So he's afraid, and that's understandable. But I think it, can, it brings this question, then what's the greatest fear of our life? What people can do to us or our disobedience to God? And I, I think that's really a valid question. What do we fear most in this life? what people can do to us or our our disobedience to God because Jacob was wrong. No doubt he was wrong in what he did to his brother Esau. But in the middle of all of that, God is still working in his life. And and I want to tell you this because I think we discount this kind of work of God within us as somehow that our sin or, or that of the workings of our life will disable God from moving in his will to be accomplished within us. And, and this is the prime example of even in the life of Jacob that God is still working even though he has sinned greatly. So what does Jacob do? He does exactly what any of us in this room would do. He sends a message to Esau telling him he's coming home and he wants to know, you know, kind of how things are going there. And he's coming home with his wives and his children and his entire farm. And he's coming to restore the relationship that he once had with him. But how will Esau respond? And so Genesis 32 and verse 6 is where we read this morning. Here's what the messengers bring back to Jacob. And the messengers return to Jacob. They said... We, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Oh, that's wonderful news, right? That's great. So here's the good news, bad news. Here's the bad news. And there are 400 men with him, right? That's the kind of the bad side of it, right? And, and then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So pity those people in camp number one, right? Yes, who do you put in camp number one? All the family members you don't like is what you do. Your crazy uncle, everybody else that really gets on your nerves at times, you put them in camp number one. You put all the people you like in camp number two. You kind of sacrifice to them. And so Esau, Esau doesn't tell the messengers what his intent is when when he returns to, to meet his brother Jacob. I have this thought. That he's not coming back for a family reunion, right? That's probably not what he's returning for. 
And he's probably not coming back either to have a really good, ugly cry with his brother Jacob. That's probably not what he's returning. And he's probably not going to post pictures of that reunion on social media. No, he's vowed to kill him. He's had 30 years to think this over. So that's probably his plan. And Jacob is saying, God, this is your idea. God, this is, this is what you put me in the middle of, God. This is your idea. And here I am with all the women, the children, all the animals. And Esau is going to meet me with 400 men. God, that's not really a really good battle plan. So God, you place me here. What do I do in those moments? That's the question that brings us to prayer. What do I do in those moments when even if it's my own doing or here it's God's call to Jacob to return, what do I do in those moments when my back is against the river and Esau, my brother who hates me, is coming for me with 400 men? What do I do in those tough moments of my life when I can't affect change, when I can't just apologize, when, when I, you know, the words that I have are just not going to work? What do I do? And here's exactly what Jacob does in this moment in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father and Abraham, Father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, he prays. He prays is what he does. He says, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau for I fear him, he says, that he may come and attack me, the mothers and with the children. In other words, he will, he will just for, perform a genocide. He's going to kill us all. So here's my thought. Jacob needs bread at midnight. It's the same thing. It's the exact same illustration that Jesus gives in the book of Luke chapter 11. That here's Jacob in a situation and he needs bread at midnight. So let's talk about prayer for a few minutes before we pray together. Prayer is not passive or perfect. Understand that. Prayer is not passive or perfect, but it should be persistent and passionate. It should. Jacob is holding up God's word to him and what we just read. He's reminding God of what God has said to him. Is Jacob collecting on what God owes him? Absolutely not. Because verse 10 frames this so well for you and I, and it has so much to do with how you and I approach God and the pasture or the, the posture of our prayer life that he's not, con, he's not collecting from God. I think what he's doing, he's balancing out his life with God. So here's what it is, that prayer is not passive, but it is humble. That's what you have to realize, that prayer is not passive, but it is humble. If I'm going to hold God's word up to him and what God has said to me in a promise, if that's what's happening here, then this is about posture. It's about me having an understanding of who God is and who I am, the balance and all of that. It's not to remind God because God is forgetful or God is uncaring. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. Jacob is struggling with how this lines up with God's promise. Your God and I'm not, is what he's saying. You're God and I'm not. I understand who you are. I understand that in light of who I am. And when I hold these words up to you, God, it's in light of both of those things. So it's okay for you and I to say to God, God, these are your promises for my life. 
But if I do that outside of humility, then that is very dangerous theology for me to have. And we hear that a lot. We hear that in Christendom today, and you can hear that on, uh, on YouTube or any other thing that you might read that you, that you hear that. Or a podcast, just remind God, just tell God what he said he promised you. And it never goes on to give you the posture in which you should do that in. And to realize that you never forget who God is and who you are. That's important. To frame that asking in that posture today. That Jacob quotes what God has said to him in that framework of humility. And then he says, because here's the point. That prayer is not about perfection. It's not about perfection. That, that God, God does not wait for the perfect words that you use. Here is Jacob in the middle of the prayer. This is why I love this and And I just really felt impressed to share this story with you from the Old Testament. Because in the middle of his prayer, he tells God he's afraid. Oh, I think we've got some, we've had some bad theology throughout our life that has created a scenario where we feel like that we cannot be honest with God and we talk to him. Oh, I don't want to let God know that I'm doubting and I don't want to let God know that I'm afraid because somehow that cancels out with God, what I'm going to ask him for as if God is not bigger than our fear and God is not bigger than all of our doubts. And so I can have those feelings in my heart and those thoughts in my mind, but I can't share them with my loving father who already knows everything about me. I want to tell you today. In this approach to prayer. That it's not about perfection at all. It's not about that. It's not about you being in this perfect state of theology to get all of your words right. No. He quotes back what God has said to him out of a, in a framing of humility is what he does. And then he says to God in verse 12, but you said, I love this text. I really do. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. When I don't know what to pray, when I don't know what to do, in those moments when I'm pushed up against the wall and I don't know necessarily what to say to God in those moments, but you said, that's what he's saying to us. That's what he practices. That, But you said, and, and I begin to think about this a lot as God would use this in our lives. Lord, this issue is insurmountable. But you said, God, you know, my brother is coming to, to give me what I deserve because I wronged him. But you said, God, about my family. God, I'm part of the problem. I understand that. But you said, God, listen, it's okay to whine in your prayers to God. It is. It's okay to lament to God. Absolutely. It's okay to do those things and be honest and transparent because prayer is not a part of our relationship with God. Prayer is our relationship with God. And it's okay in the framework of humility for me to say to God, but God, you said. Wow. So what have you been asking God for? What have you been praying about? Well, what is, what is that 
What is that request or, or that thing that you have asked God for? But you said, man. But I'm afraid to, I'm afraid to be persistent with God. Because somehow persistence with God offends him. No. Jesus is teaching us this. He gave us the story for a reason. It's not my story. It's Jesus' story. It is. There's a purpose for the persistence in our lives. And I think that that's what we have to to, to kind of wrap our minds around. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So don't write this off yet. No, this is, this is not just like the, the silver bullet for you to use in order to get something from God. And if you think that's what Jesus is teaching us, then we'd have to dispel so many other teachings of Christ within our life. So that's not the teaching at all here. It's not. But you said, God, that prayer is not passive. It's not perfect. But it is passionate and it is persistent. So drop down to verse 24, the rest of the story. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This is amazing, a moment about prayer. And, and when, the, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me, is what he said. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Practicing prayer can at times resemble a wrestling match. It can. I love it that God is a fan of the WWF. It really is. That's what it is, right? He uses this for you and I. Yes. I think we're even afraid of Saying prayer is like a wrestling match at times in our life. Mark, you shouldn't really say that, you know. Maybe, maybe something is wrong with me, and that's why I'm really struggling with this spiritual discipline within my life. No, there's a purpose for this at times in our life. That we pray like we're pinned to the mat by our opponent. We pray like our back is to the river, like Esau is coming on the horizon with 400 warriors. And all I have between Esau and myself is a promise that God has given us. What more do I need? Is that enough? Is that what God is teaching us in this moment? It is. But I struggle with waiting. Yeah. I, 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 I struggle with that moment of, of having to wait on God in my prayer life, you know? And, and what I realize is that there's a place for that as well. That times of waiting has this purifying effect on me. It, it, it does. That waiting on God, waiting in those moments when I pray to God and God has not answered my prayer, that, that it helps me to see those areas of my life that I have trusted in God more or trusted in myself and other things more than I've trusted in God. And there has to be a way for me to see those moments in my life, those things in my life that I'm trusting in more than I'm trusting in God. And the only thing that makes those things appear so vividly for me in my life is what? When I don't get what I've asked God for at that very moment. So there's a purpose in waiting. But I struggle with waiting. I do. So yesterday, 
Reba and I went through the drive-through at Chick-fil-A because you know if you love God you eat there, right? True, yeah. And and so we went through the drive-through. The drive-through is for you know drive-throughs are built for impatient people, right? Isn't that right? Because it's instantaneous food almost. No sooner than you order, <clears throat> then you go around the building, right? And all of a sudden your food is there. It's amazing. It is a miracle, right? And and so it's sort of like manna. And so anyway, there it is, right? And, and so we ordered, and, and they take your order on the iPad if I, I didn't use my app. And you reach out, and you tap the iPad with your card, and, and you pay. And so we get around to the other side of the building to get our instantaneous food, right? And guess what? Guess what? It's not instantaneous. Do you know why? Because someone in front of us has decided to use cash. Who uses cash anymore, right? Yes, that green stuff that you find in a museum, you don't see it a whole lot any longer, right? Yes, and so, you know, they decide to use cash. You can't give cash to the iPad uh, at the other place, so they have to take the money, go inside, make the change, come back. We're waiting. I'm looking at Reba saying, what is going on? This is Chick-fil-A. This uses, usually works miraculously like this, right? And, and we're waiting, and she just looks at me and shakes her head, and she just says, you know, you need some patience. You need to wait, and I'm waiting. It's hot. It's like 300 degrees outside, even in the car with the air going, right? Yes, and, and so I'm waiting, and I'm waiting for this person. It's just like, and, and I'm thinking all along in the back of my head, Mark, you're going to talk about waiting tomorrow. You're terrible. You know, this is bad. No, this is good. I need this lesson in my life, right? There's a purpose for waiting in your life when it comes to prayer. There's a purpose in that God does not operate like the drive through at Chick-fil-A. It, it doesn't, you know, I don't, it doesn't happen always like that in my life. Some of you have been praying for things for a long time and those things have not, you know, come about yet in your life. And, and so what are you saying, Mark? I'm saying there's, there's a lesson to be learned in the process of waiting in my life, in, in your life. It is. And it reveals the things in my life. And sometimes this process is really ugly but it reveals the things in my life that I trust in more than I trust in God. And so that's why prayer at times in my life resembles a wrestling match. Because Jacob had to realize that most of his life, he had trusted in himself, his ability to that of manipulate people to get what he wanted that he trusted in himself and not God. And now God is revealing those things in his life. So you see, the challenge of prayer is really a growth process in my life because it's about me seeing the strength of my faithfulness in God's goodness and not my own. So submission is a key factor to our prayer life. So I thought about this wrestling match and I tie all this up in just a sec with you. But I thought about this wrestling match between God. And so I, I began to think, you know, and I posed this question. 
how do you lose the fight? How do you lose the fight and still win big? I mean, that's great, you know? You gotta master that, right? So how do you, how do you lose the fight and still win big? And what I realized that submission is achieved in my life through understanding the object of prayer. That's how I win because the ultimate object of my prayer is not the thing that I've asked God for. The ultimate object of my prayer is God himself. It is, it is God himself. You see, Jacob doesn't work everything out in that wrestling match with God. He doesn't. He doesn't work everything out with his brother Esau. He still doesn't know how Esau is going to greet him and what he's going to do to him. He doesn't know that. But what he now knows, because he walks the rest of his life with a limp because of that of wrestling with God and God putting his hip out of joint, he he knows that God is with him and he has a relationship with God to the point that God has changed his name from Jacob to Israel. You see, the ultimate of your prayer life is that of a greater relationship with God. So last verse from the book of Genesis 33, verse one. I'm gonna tell you how it ends, right? And here it is. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men was with him. So he, excuse me, he divided the, the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with, with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. You know, poor Jacob, after even all of this, he still has Leah issues, doesn't he, right? If you know the story, you understand why. Leah, you and your kids get out front. Rachel and I are gonna stand in the back, you know? So if somebody's killed, you guys are killed first. It's awful, isn't it? Yes, he's still a human. He's still extremely imperfect. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob, he limps to Esau is what he does. Esau runs to his brother. The family sees Jacob limping so they know that he's been with God Man, that God has done something really powerful in his life through this time of prayer and wrestling with God because prayer is not perfect and prayer is not passive, but it's passionate and it is persistent and God is with him because a relationship with God is far more valuable than anything that God could ever give you on your prayer shopping list. And going into this meeting, Jacob doesn't know whether it's going to be the sword or reconciliation. But I'm not sure that really means a whole lot to Jacob any longer. Because I think Jacob would say, God, however this works out, sword or reconciliation with my brother, however this works out, God, I have you. And you are enough, God. You are enough because you're the object to all of my prayers. You see how that I navigate those moments when God does not immediately work like a drive through in my life when it comes to my prayer life. 
the way I navigate that and I still win big in my life, even though that I haven't gotten what I want, is I realize that God is the subject and God is the ultimate prize in my prayer life, if you want to use those terms. And that's what is ultimately important. And God is enough. He's enough. So back in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to one who knocks, it will be opened. And what I realized before you leave today to tell you this, that it's not your prayer life that causes God to love you more. Understand that. What your prayer life does First of all and foremost, it unlocks your heart to the realization of how much God does love you and how much God does care for you and how much God is absolutely committed to you. Do you have confidence in that love and goodness in your life when you approach him in prayer? So, I am the father, Reba and I are parents of three boys. I've told you this before. None of them are home anymore. But when they were little guys, they would get up in the middle of the night and they would come to our bedroom. Isn't it kind of interesting how that you can be sound asleep at three o'clock in the morning and you immediately awake when you feel someone staring at you at the edge of your bed. Isn't that amazing? Frightening, isn't it? Before you open your eyes, you're praying, God, let this be one of my children, please, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I would awake and one of my boys would be standing there staring at me. And they would uh, say to me, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. They would never say to me, Dad, I am so sorry for the inconvenience of waking you in the middle of your slumber. But would you kindly go to the kitchen and get me some H2O for my thirst? Never. It's I'm thirsty. They would ask me because they had confidence in my love and care for them. Now, if I wake up at 3 a.m. and one of you were standing in my bedroom looking at me, right? And you said to me, I'm thirsty. I'm calling the cops, right? Yes, because you don't belong there. I love you, but you don't. But my child can do that. And they can ask and just say to me the words, I'm thirsty because they have confidence in my loving care for them. And I don't say to them, hey, your mom's over there sleeping right next to me. You go ask her, okay? Dad needs some sleep. No, what do I do? I get up, I go to the kitchen I I grab a cup, put some water in, give him a drink, 
take them back to bed, tuck them in, tell them I love them, give them a kiss. And they go to this amazing, deep sleep because they've experienced a moment with their father. So how many times have you been thirsty in your life? How many moments have you been thirsty and you would want to come to God, but you're not sure, you're not confident about how God feels about you or cares for you or how much he loves you? And so you kind of back up to God. You don't know how God will respond to you because you're not sure in your heart and you're not confident of his relationship with you. You see, that's what prayer does in our life first and foremost uh, before anything else that it reassures us that we can be confident in him and his love and his care for our lives. So Mark, so you're saying that then I can come to God and I can just ask God for anything I want. It really doesn't matter anything I want and God is just going to give it to me. If you heard that this morning, then you are actually at another church and you have been teleported here for some weird reason. I don't know. Maybe to hear the truth that that's not the way it works. Because if my son stands before my bed and asks me for a drink of water, I don't get up and brew him a pot of coffee at three years old. That's not what's good for him. So your heavenly father gives you what is in his will for you because he does what's best for you. So as you struggle today with your approach to God, let these two stories speak to your heart about how you approach God in confidence. And he is a God who hears you this morning. He is not a God who is asleep in the room with his family and his animals and he's grouchy because you have woke him up. But he's a God who is eager to have a conversation with you. And I take it a step further. to grant your request because prayer does change things around us. It does. And if I know not to serve my three-year-old coffee at 3 a.m. in the morning because he's thirsty, then don't you think your heavenly father knows what's best for you? So can I pray with you this morning? Would you take a posture of prayer, however that looks for you? Those who are joining us online this morning, would you do the same and pray with us today? So Father, thank you that you know us in and out, everything about us. Nothing is guesswork to you when it comes to us. So Father, you know that we have struggled with prayer and the motivation for prayer God, because we tend to ask for things and we throw 
request into heaven and then we just don't mention them again or ever have a conversation with you again. And Father, so you know we struggle with that, but God, you also, you know that we struggle with how we approach you. And so Father, we're thirsty. God, we find ourselves like a three-year-old at 3 a.m. in the morning who needs a drink and God, we find that sometimes we'll walk to the edge of the bed and we'll go back away and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll try to get the courage up, God, to, to have this conversation with you and we just can't muster it. And then, God, at some moment we do and we find ourselves apologizing all over ourselves and, and begging and somehow asking with a, almost a caveat attached that, God, we know you're not gonna hear, but here's the request anyway. And God, you dispel all of those things for us today that we ask you, with boldness and persistence framed in humility of who you are and who we are, God. But we ask we ask in confidence knowing that you love us and that you care for us. And God, if you don't answer immediately, we still know that you care for us and love us because the waiting moment, Lord, is a moment to tr- teach us something, Lord, to, to help us to see things that we've trusted in greater than you, God, in our life. That God, thank you, this is not a, a magic formula. This is not a moment to command you to do anything. And God, forgive us for reducing prayer to some liturgical event in our life and not being relational. But God, this is about a relationship with you, our Father. So today we ask, today we ask, we ask. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week. 